Welcome to this Market Commentator podcast. My name is Rijk van Niekerk and my guest today is Dr. Adrian Saville. He is, of course, the Chief Strategist at Citadel. Adrian, welcome to the show. I want to start with Donald Trump. Um, I don't know if you saw his press conference earlier this week, but boy, um, I think the whole world is in for a tough four years. Uh, and pardon the pun, it seems like he is a, a loose cannon in the White House. What do you expect of him and what could the potential impact on markets be? Yeah, I love that observation. Markets don't agree with you <laughs> because if you look at the way markets have responded, equity markets is my uh, specific reference, uh, is equity markets from uh, the moment Trump uh, was announced uh, the winner, there was shock and uh, the S&P 500 priced in a 5% fall. And uh, before that shock could actually materialize in market prices, the futures started to recover. And the S&P finished the first day uh, under Trump as president-elect in positive territory. Uh, That was the beginning of November. And since then, U.S. equities in particular have just gone uh, stronger and stronger. And if equities are pricing earnings capability, uh, then they're saying that the U.S. economy is in reasonable shape and that uh, we have to make the observation that equity markets uh, are not short-sighted. They're looking further than the immediate future. So they're anticipating a, a reasonable set of earnings results that company performance will be okay under Trump. The part of the market that has responded with the greatest uh, surprise or shock is is bonds and that's probably you know easy to explain with the advantage of hindsight that Trump proposes fairly aggressive fiscal policy. We don't know where he's going to get the money from. He's got to borrow it. That will be inflationary. It'll tighten the screws on uh, the, the capital markets, the borrowing part of capital markets. And so U.S. interest rates, uh, short and long interest rates, have started to respond in anticipation. But four years under Trump, uh, well, I think we're in for an interesting ride. <laughs> yeah, There could be surprises at any given moment. At any moment. You, you know, you uh, make the uh, noted observation about the, the loose cannon. Um, uh, and I think he's exactly that. Uh, that, again, if we go back to what he said uh, on his uh, acceptance speech, his victory speech, he went from being this bull terrier uh, days before, moments before, uh, he's announced president-elect and suddenly you have this statesman-like stature, absolutely extraordinary. I don't believe the statesman-like stature. I don't believe the bull terrier either. The bull terrier was the uh, election speak and uh, uh, statesman-like stature is flippant and fleeting, that he keeps showing his his true hand, and his true hand doesn't fill me with uh, with glee and joy. You know, it, his election does bring uncertainty, um, as we've just discussed. But, you know, we have knowables in the world and we have unknowables mm. in the world. And currently many people focus on the unknowables, things we don't know. Yeah. Um, what are the knowables? Um, wh- what do we know will happen in 2017 in the various areas around the world? <laughs> as long as you'll never play this back. <laughs> the knowables are that the big economies will continue to matter the most. Uh, so the performance of the US, Europe, Japan, uh, and at the fringe, 
the real engine of economic growth in recent times has been China. And China manufactures their growth numbers. Uh, so the easier place to go to for true Chinese performance is to look at things like rail freight, uh, bank lending, uh, uh, property prices are a reasonable barometer, and uh, of course, commodity prices. So those uh, heavyweight economies are known to have material impact. The question that we put over them is, so what will performance look like? I think the US will be okay. Uh, Europe will be anemic. Japan will go nowhere again for the 25th year in a row or something like that. Uh, and uh, China is the swing factor. Uh, I would say of those big knowns, the real one to watch uh, is China and then how the U.S. performs under Trump. And although Japan and Europe are the anemic elements, they're actually more knowable. And we can put sort of greater certainty in our guesstimate that they will spend the year in listless direction. The other, the other known is that uh, there, there are some important policy actions coming up. Europe, Brexit, and how that materializes uh, is an important one. Does that affect your investment decisions? It has to. Um, but I would go back to your earlier point, which was about the unknowns. <laughs> because the things that matter most are the unknowns that jump out the cupboard at four o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon. And they come in the form of things that are almost impossible to imagine. So if you think of the big blow-ups, the huge dramas of recent times, uh, Brexit was entirely contrary to expectations. Trump was contrary to expectations. It was possible but overwhelmingly unanticipated. Uh, the Further in the, in the distance would be things like uh, Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns, uh, those collapses. They were guessable, but they weren't expected. And so whilst you can position your portfolio for things that you might anticipate, the wobbliness or unknowability of a Brexit decision. And that's exactly how we position portfolios. We position it for uncertainty and uh, uncertainty. But the one that you have to position for to an even fuller extent is this unknowability. Uh, and how will your portfolio perform in an environment in a future that is essentially unknowable? Looking at your asset allocation within your portfolios, uh, in which asset classes are you overweight and in which classes are you underweight? So the portfolios that I look after um, cover a, a fairly wide spectrum and they range all the way from asset allocation to, you know, as you know, specific stock picking um, in my Superdogs portfolio, for instance. In the asset allocation mandates for South African investors, it remains the case that if you lived on Mars and you looked at the world and you said, where should I allocate assets, you would have no more than about 1% of your total. Anything more than 1% allocated to South Africa would be an overweight South Africa position. Um, and that shouldn't be interpreted in any way as an anti-South Africa uh, stance. But if you are allocating assets according to global asset allocation, the bulk of your assets should be offshore. Um, and uh, my asset allocation mandates stand that way. Inside of there, there's some fairly uh, specific or, or, or firm views that we have. The one is we've held for some time, uh, and that is bonds globally are extremely expensive and should be avoided. 
that's been a particularly good place, a good call for the last quarter of last year, where uh, U.S. bonds in particular repriced and uh, uh, and lost a fair chunk of money. But uh, overwhelmingly, global bonds look expensive, so we stay away from those. Global equities, you have to be careful about where you go because some markets do look fairly richly priced. Others look attractive but may well be value traps. The fairly richly priced is the United States. The attractive but perhaps value trapped Japan is a case in point. In South African assets, uh, equities, after doing nothing for the last 12 months, are starting to look interesting again. And South African government bonds, I would venture, are a very interesting place to go. A niche asset class that remains extremely attractive are preference shares, South African preference shares. Preference shares, uh, can you expand a bit on that? Yeah, so the preference shares is interesting. Um, it's an illiquid asset class, so you're being offered, I think, an illiquidity premium. It's not entirely unknown and unresearched, but it's not well followed. Uh, many investment conversations uh, sort of start with equities, bonds, and property and stop there. They don't go to the, if I could call it more esoteric or peripheral asset classes. There's a concern, a specific concern around bond preference shares in South Africa, and that is uh, government regulation requires banks t uh, under uh, Basel to treat preference shares no longer as uh, base capital. And that means preference shares no longer hold the, the weight and stature that they do. Many of the banks are slowly uh, redeeming those preference shares and cancelling them. So that market is becoming even thinner and, and less liquid. Whilst all of that is going on, uh, you're being offered uh, yields in double digits with bank balance sheets behind them. And I think that that's a really interesting uh, proposition. And a bit more conservative. And it's conservative. You do have the volatility of preference shares, so they have a equity-like component. But if, you're, if your mandate is forever, if you've got a very long investment horizon, I think preference shares make for a very interesting proposal. I just want to go back to a, a point you've made about being overweight in South African equities. In many ways, regulations, you know, force local asset managers to invest uh, more in South Africa and limit mm. your potential to invest offshore. Sure. Are you concerned about this? Because would you not rather invest in LVM than in Richmond, for example, or have the option to invest, uh, you know, in those two very similar stocks, mm. but due to regulations, you are, you know, in many ways forced to invest in Richmond? I love your reference to the option because that's exactly what the greater um, global universe uh, affords, and that's optionality. That if you want to invest, for instance, in a motor manufacturer, your options in South Africa are none. <laughs> yeah. um, and when you want to invest in a luxury brand retailer, you've got uh, a Richemont as a, as a prospect, but that's more or less where it starts and stops. So you afforded a far greater choice, and that optionality allows you to build um, more effective portfolios. But to rewind perhaps a step, so that's a long way of saying yes. Uh, offshore gives you optionality. You can build more interesting, more effective portfolios. Uh, but to rewind, whilst you know, I'm, I made an earlier argument to say if you lived on Mars and looked at Earth, you should have 99% of your capital offshore. What that point overlooks or doesn't cater for is you first have to put into the equation your expenditure basket. Uh, 
And if your expenditure basket is RAND, uh, then you need to make sure that your asset base first services that RAND expenditure basket uh, or is built to look after that ultimate RAND expenditure basket. So if you're 40, you want to be building your pension for a RAND retirement. Uh, and if you're 75, you want to be holding a portfolio that services RAND retirement. But anything over and above that is where the 99% story belongs, uh, what we could call for the sake of a term quadrant four assets or surplus assets. And the reason why I make the point that it needs to be surplus is if you have uh, a portfolio that generates an annual income of, uh, let me make up a number, 250,000 rand to look after your retirement, uh, and that 250,000 rand is generated in U.S. dollars, and then the rand does something spectacular. It moves from 14 rand to the dollar, where it is today, to 7 rand to the dollar. Your retirement income has just halved. So the certainty around your retirement income is compromised the moment you have the volatility of currency in it. And so the, uh, when it comes to thinking about building asset baskets, I would venture that 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 luxury, the importance of overseas assets, uh, has far less impact and import when it comes to thinking about uh, expenditure matching as opposed to surplus asset. Let's talk about the local market. Um, one of the key trends of last year was the significant outflow from foreign investors. Mm. They, you know, I don't know what the number is, but it's uh, you know north of fifty billion that was. Uh, moved from the JSC to other asset classes, mostly to international um, destinations. Uh, do you think that will continue? And, and what could the impact be if that trend continues? The number that I saw was uh, even bigger than yours. I think it's uh, in excess of 100 billion in equity that went out. Um, there was a more modest inflow into South African government bonds. Keep in mind, and that 100 tw uh, a billion in equity outflow represents a large part of South Africa's foreign exchange reserves. So we're vulnerable uh, to that. And it's interesting then how well the RAND did, notwithstanding that huge outflow. There were some specific factors that explained the big equity outflow. Um, uh, Steinhoff, their offshore uh, listing, and to a much greater extent, SAB Miller. That explains it. So those are, to some extent, one-off effects. And if they're one-off effects, I would venture that South Africa will see a much smaller outflow if there is one uh, with those removed from the equation. Uh, South African government bonds, I think, continue to offer an interesting um, avenue for yield seekers. And I would guess that as things stand, more money comes for the South African bond market, that equities have repriced and look reasonably attractive in South Africa and that we don't have those uh, big one-off events taking place, the RAND might benefit from uh, a reflux and that some of that capital that left in equities may well return. But that's a, that's a hard number to figure out. What percentage of the foreign ownership does that 100 billion represent? It's, it's modest. The, the, amount of, the, the total amount of capital behind the South African uh, market wall uh, is multiples of that. And if that money were to change its mind and leave in an afternoon, the rand would go, uh, for the sake of a term, to hell in a handbasket. It really would be uh, a spectacular um, hot money uh, event. 
So it's important then uh, to go back to an earlier point that you were making about uh, market confidence and the, the knowns and the stability and stature of the South African environment. It's really important that we recognize the the vulnerability and the fragility of the South African capital market to those foreign capital flows. The short answer is if that money changed its mind, you would see a spectacular rand sell-off. How much of that is influenced by internal, you know, political uncertainty? We're going to mm. have a very interesting political year. We will. And, uh, you know, last year we started off under this massive uh, uncertainty mm. where often Shlanshlanene was fired. Uh, but in the end, the, the currency or the exchange rate was one of the best performing you know, currencies in the yeah. world. The rand was one of the best performing currencies in the world, which was totally unexpected. I don't think anyone yeah. expected in January last year that we would uh, end the year uh, sub 14 rand to the dollar. How does that impact decisions? And especially for foreigners, does it have such a big impact as we here in South Africa believe it does? Yeah. When an economist gets a forecast right, they tell you. <laughs> um, and so I'll tell you that at the beginning of last year when the rand was Around about exactly this day last year, the rand was at about 18 rand to the dollar. Uh, I wrote a note to our clients to say we thought that 13.50 was uh, fair value. And it's great that it made its way back there because it makes us wealthier globally. But I think it also helps reinforce the point that you want to build portfolios that can cater for all terrain and that as much as I proposed the RAND could go to 1350, it was possible that it went to 20 or even higher against the US dollar. Your earlier point, though, was how much does um, uh, internal factors influence the RAND? And the short answer is surprisingly little. There's lovely work that's been done by the IMF, which tries to break up the factors that influence the RAND into internal and external components. And their weighting suggests that about one-third of the RAND's performance is explained by South African-specific factors. Uh, of course, when it comes to commentary on the RAND, we spend about 100% of our time talking about domestic factors. But I think it's, it's worth noting that two-thirds of RAND behavior, based on this evidence, and it's robust evidence, actually is influenced from outside the country. And what's going on outside the country are things such as commodity prices, risk on, risk off, activity in the Fed, Brexit decisions, and so on. And it's these external effects that have a far greater influence on the RAND than domestic effects. Just lastly, uh, looking at the local market, where do you see value and what sectors are you staying away from? I think the South African economy is in better shape this uh, at the start of this year than it was at the start of last year. Um, there's been some pricing in of that. But uh, my suspicion for 2017 is that economic growth will be better than 16. Inflation will be lower. We've seen the top of the interest rate cycle. And all else given, the, 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 the RAND should be relatively stable. And that starts to play then into... Uh, domestic facing elements such as the construction firms, the engineering firms, uh, manufacturing or quasi manufacturing, the retailers, uh, banks, insurers. So I'm, uh, I'm going to make an argument 
not so much against uh, Richemont and uh, the offshore exposure. And the resource companies have had a very, very good uh, 2016. I'm not sure that they can repeat that in 17. I would rather allocate capital to things that I think have been overlooked, ignored, a little bit unloved. And, you know, amongst the retailers, you've got the likes of Woolworths looking really interesting. Uh, amongst the construction engineering businesses, a company like Group 5 with its offshore concessions business looks uh, particularly interesting. Thank you, Adrian. That was Adrian Saville. He is the chief strategist at Citadel.